Welcome to the second installment of the Sweater Vest Dialogues. This month's episode is on the Trinity and Patriarchy. Before we get started, I wanted to draw your attention to Douglas Wilson's newest book, Plotactivity. What's plotactivity? Plotactivity, noun, the practice of plotting away at a pile of work instead of frantically trying to sprint through it all, and being stable and graceful, like a buffalo upon the plains, not frantic like a prairie dog or roadrunner. Steward 2020 Well with Plot Activity, available now at canonpress.com. Without further ado, here's Dr. James White and Pastor Douglas Wilson. We're sort of calling these the sweater vest dialogues. Oh, Doug, are you wearing a sweater vest? <laughs> I am. Uniform, uniform of the day. <laughs> this is not, this is not going to work for me in July. Um, but, uh, it would, it would result in fainting and various sundry other bad things like that. But, uh, uh, last time we got together, you know, did you notice that we solved all the, all the questions? There was no controversy, <laughs> no disputation. Uh, the clarity was so, was just so spot on that everyone said, Hey, we have it all figured out and there's no more controversy. Did you notice how that worked? Yeah. I noticed how the, I, th- I thought James brought it, you know? <laughs> In other words, it doesn't matter how clearly you express yourselves. There's still the Internet just, uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that the Lord really designed us to have this amount of information coming at us uh, at the speed that it comes at us all the right. time, uh, to be perfectly honest with you. But I'll be perfectly honest. I did not even know that there was... that. How many controversies are you involved with at a at one time? At one time, they come and go. They they oscillate. They oscillate. Okay. Well, because yes. I, I thought I, I I thought my life was just sort of like that, but you seem to. I, I I was informed even after the last program that there's this whole thing about the Trinity and patriarchy, and I'm like, what? Seriously? And and it's like, yeah. Mm, yeah. And like, okay, well, obviously, one of the reasons I don't know about some of this stuff as far as what's going on in that way is I'm normally... Because you have a life? I have, I have a weird life, and it's, it's a life uh, dialoguing with Muslims and, and issues like that, and I don't know, I, you know, so I, I catch up on things. But I remember... And uh, you wrote an, a blog article uh, around the same time. I believe it was the summer of 2016. Uh, the yeah, reason right. the reason I remember this is the controversy broke over the eternal subordination of the sun stuff. Now, obviously, this is not a new issue. I mean, you could technically say that this sort of comes up in different forms numerous times in church history. It is right. the essence of... Uh, the struggle of the post-Nicene church to deal with Christological issues, to deal with um, really formulating, eventually getting to the Chalcedonian definition, but even then there were, there were still some unanswered questions at that point on, on particular issues. Um, and certainly, uh, for me, uh, this took me back to the issues that, that come up. Uh, see, I, I deal with a lot of people that people inside the church are not necessarily dialoguing with all the time. Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses, right. Mormons, right. Muslims, 
And so I come at this as an apologist who's doing debates in mosques in South Africa. So that's a little different than the context that we have in a lot of other uh, places. And I think it, right. it, it impacts my concerns. And why don't you start off with what, what, were, what were your concerns as you saw the dispute uh, starting in 2016? Then I'll uh, talk a little bit about some of the uh, preceding concerns that I had as well. <coughs> so, yeah, in 2016, there was a, another, uh, well, it wasn't the first time, but there was a blow up about the eternal subordination of the sun. And some, um, some people... Um, uh, Bruce Ware, uh, others in uh, that circle have argued in favor of complementarianism, uh, role relationships between men and women, that uh, the, the argument is a sort of a very short, brief, easy to understand one. And that is, uh, no, complementarianism is fine because subordination does not imply inequality. So, um, so in the, as they're talking to secularists, feminists, quasi-feminists, they want to say, well, no, uh, the, the father uh, is authoritative over the son uh, eternally, and that uh, authority and submission within the Godhead um, does not imply inequality. So they're affirming the Nicene essential of the equality of the son, the full deity of the Son, but they they want to say that the fully divine Son is subordinate to the Father, and this is a way of answering feminism, where uh, subordination or submission does not equal inequality. All right. The problem with it is the that that argument. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure who named it the uh, uh, ESS. E the eternal subordination of the sun, but it's a bad, um, it, it, it was a bad naming job because subordinationism is a classic Trinitarian heresy. Okay. So um, you have that, that's on the, on the one hand. So that's what uh, those guys did. Um, that came out of the complementarian circles, um, uh, you know, but that that's been and going then, on. They they've been saying that for for years. It was if I if I recall correctly, it was someone associated uh, with Carl Truman that uh, did a blog article and it and sort of uh, relit. It's sort of like the gas had been pooling for a while it, and and lit the match and, and away it went. I think I think they've been saying that for decades. Yeah, and then um, uh, then some of the pushback started to happen. Where I would call, I I don't want to say. Um, some of the classic Nicene uh, Orthodox people in our in Reformed Evangelical circles said, "Hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, there's a there's a problem here, and the problem and, and uh, the problem is that if you have authority and submission within the Godhead, authority and submission ad intra, you know, with the um, with the incarnation not in view. Right. If you have authority and submission within the Godhead itself, doesn't that entail two wills within the Godhead? And that's a classic heresy also. So if you have one will commanding and the other will 
submitting, um, and you have you have two wills there, then that that uh, that's heretical because God has one will. Right? There's there's one will in the classic formulation of Nicene Orthodoxy. So what I wanted to do in uh, when I um, I was not a um, participant or I didn't have a jersey on either side of this, you know, I've, and, and what I wrote in, on my blog in 2016 was an attempt to give everyone their due. Okay. There are important points to be made on uh, both sides here. And I think that there is a a way of uh, reading, reading them harmoniously and not in, uh, not in collision. I don't think they, that that's also illegal on the internet. However, <laughs> you I mean, did, 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 didn't, you, didn't you see the flag come in immediately? Because that's, that's, that can't be done. Um, right. Well, that's I'm just I'm just a peacemaking kind of guy. You know? Oh yeah, <laughs> your your reputation precedes you. Yes. So so let's let's make sure because these let let's just be honest. These are not the normal issues that take up most Sunday morning sermons. And um, I wrote a book in, I think it came out in 1998, called The Forgotten Trinity. Uh, It's been used for a long, long time, uh, sort of as a a biblical introduction to the doctrine and so on and so forth. And I've had so many people comment at the beginning of that book, I had in the introduction talked about, I love the Trinity. And And I contrasted, I said, when have you last heard someone say that? You hear them say, I love uh, election, I love prophecy, I love the Bible, so on and so forth. You almost never hear them say, I love the Trinity, and I think the primary reason is most Christians are barely functionally Trinitarian, if they're Trinitarian right. at all. Because and, and, the, and the fathers at Nicaea made the mis- mistake of not outlawing every Sunday school illustration of the Trinity, which... which Every Sunday school illustration, or when you're teaching twelve-year-olds, every last one of them is the illustration of some heresy or other. Yep, it is. Um, it is. It is very true. And unfortunately, those heresies end up being the substance of much of the preaching in Western Christianity on the subject of the Trinity as well. And so, and the primary area where people are uncomfortable, it's not monotheism. It's not the deity of Christ. It is what we would call the relationship of the divine persons, the, the ontological relationship, not the economic trinity. That is, right. uh, once, once the Father, the Son, the Spirit choose to save in a particular way, they take different roles. It's the Son who becomes incarnate, not the Spirit, not the Father. Uh, in that context, it's fairly easy to recognize the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit, and, and things like that. It's when you try to go before John 1.14 in the Incarnation, and you start looking at the relationship of the divine persons in eternity past, that now you have what are called the opera ad intra, the internal operations that, that are meant to distinguish uh, the Father, the Son, the Spirit— this is this is tough for most people teaching systematic theology, let alone uh, uh, people teaching Sunday schools or teaching their kids right. in homeschool, whatever else it might be. And one of the things I noticed in the debate is some of the ad. I think there's a mistake, a common mistake made by the ESS people, which is to point to un, uh, undoubted biblical references to uh, Jesus submitting to the Father. Um, 
and not budgeting for the fact that this was the incarnate Jesus submitting to the Father. Right. So, um, so Jesus being obedient to death on the cross and to the point of death on the cross in Philippians, him setting his face to go to Jerusalem, him wrestling with the Father's will in in Gethsemane and going to the cross in obedience. Everybody agrees right. that the incarnate son obeyed his father. Everybody agrees that Jesus in his humanity was submissive to the father. Um, and, and so a proof text that shows that the incarnate one obeyed his father is neither here nor there in this discussion. The issue is not did God the father send his son to the cross at Jerusalem. The issue is, did God the Father send his son into the world? Right. So the the decision for Christ, to for the second person of the Trinity to become incarnate, the question is whether that was ascending. So all the sending in the human life of Christ is immaterial to the, to the point under discussion. So we're talking about is there authority in sub and submission at any level of any kind within the Godhead apart from a world even having been created? Right. So you in know. other words, when, when we talk about the, the eternal covenant of redemption, the idea that the Father, Son, and Spirit, and we don't say this temporally, but, but logically at, at some point in time, chose to create in such a way as to bring maximum glory to uh, to the Godhead, and each of those divine persons took the roles they took, was there a necessary uh, hierarchy of relationship prior to that that would have marked the Father and the Son and the Spirit in their relationship to one another? So the eternal subordination, right. not just such simply that, temporal. Such that when uh, the Incarnation happened, it was not conceivable that the Father would be the one who would become incarnate. That's one of the or, that's right. one of the issues that comes up exactly. Right. 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 So now the the problem I I go back and oh and we both use that uh, term to, for our viewers um talking about God in his essence apart from the incarnation apart from the world. We're talking about the relationships of the persons of the Trinity ad intra with within himself uh without reference to the outside world. Without, um, and, and creation and anything that comes from how he acts in time. This is, this is God considered simply he, as God. Right, the way he is. Right. Um, now, the, so the argument is um, uh, the, the people who are uh, concerned about the economic, uh, the eternal or uh, uh, eternal subordination of the sun uh, will, will say this necessitates two wills. Because I've never seen a command and a and a and an obedience to that command that didn't entail two wills, mm -hmm. which you do have in the garden. So uh, Christ says, "Nevertheless, not my will, but your will." Right. So you have two wills there. But again, that's the incarnate Christ saying that. So if you say ESS requires that you uh, stipulate that the God has Godhead has two or three wills then that would be heretical. That really is heresy uh, proper. Um, the, but the issue is how much of this is us trying to get 
uh, operate above our pay grade. Right. So w- when when we get into the inner workings of the Trinity before the world was created, I like to think of it as June bugs trying to do quantum physics. Right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah the, uh, and and I see the role of the creed, the great historic creeds, as uh, signposts that say, "Don't go there." Right. And uh, 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 don't go there. There's a chasm there. There's a chasm there. So fully God, fully man in at Chalcedon, and we don't confuse the the natures of uh, deity and humanity. Don't don't make that mistake. And we simply assert uh, what what the faith is without being able to do the math, right? So uh, when people say uh, you can't talk about any kind of authority at all uh, within the Godhead, I want to object, protest a little bit because uh, I I cannot imagine uh, a command and obedience to a command without some sort of friction or distance between the the persons. And I've never I've never seen uh, a command and obedience that was conducted with just one will. I've never seen that. But neither have I seen uh, someone loving and re- uh, someone returning that love, and have that entail just one will. <laughs> Every, everybody acknowledges that the Father loves the Son eternally, right. and the Son loves the Father eternally. Um, well, is that one will or not? I I don't have anything in my experience no. that would that would that I could point to and say, see that that's an example of it. Right, and we and we we have to be very very careful because in two in two areas, and this this again is something that I have to deal with very frequently outside of the Christian faith. And I'll I'll be honest with you, I I think it would have helped some of the 2016 conversation and what has come after that if if more of the people having the conversation were regularly having to discuss these things with non-believers. With uh, with yeah. Muslims and and with Unitarians and people like that because there there's there's one area I just want to throw this in because some people could be confused right now because we've talked about the one will of God but there's also a when we talk about Jesus and the incarnation the hypostatic union they may have heard of conflicts in church history about monothelitism duothelitism one will two will in Jesus we're not talking right. we're 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 talking solely before incarnation and really before creation itself and the roles right. that have been taken by Father, Son, and Spirit. This is where a lot of the confusion comes in. And obviously there is there is a limitation as to the amount of revelation that we're operating on here. And this is also illustrative of the fact I'm dealing with these issues in other areas right now. There seems to be somewhat of a movement of, quote-unquote, formerly Reformed guys toward Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know that. I think that's always a constant thing. It just goes in, in ebbs and flows and things like that. And so the issues of sola scriptura, tota scriptura, development of theology, uh, the authority of ecumenical councils, uh, all these things are back on the table that have to be thought through and frequently are not thought through in, in a meaningful fashion. And we as Reformed people are in between the, the people on the one side that says just me, my Bible out in the woods alone is, is plenty, 
And then on the other side, you have the elevation of an ecclesiastical authority, the subordination of Scripture into a category of written tradition and oral tradition, and the Church interprets, and so on and so forth, and all the things that come from that. Uh, we're We're in a place where we have to deal with all that. You can't be Reformed and ignore Church history, because then you couldn't read any of the Reformers, because they were constantly talking about Church history, and they're constantly quoting right. Tertullian or Augustine or whoever else it might be. We don't have that option. Uh, we, have to, we have to deal with those things. Um, and so let me just mention, uh, years ago, 1998, so good grief, over, over uh, 20 years ago, um, I stood at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting, uh, the only one I ever went to, uh, with someone you may have heard of, Daniel Wallace. Dan Wallace is a well-known uh, Greek grammarian. He's uh, also real big into the Greek New Testament manuscripts and things like that. But uh, Dan Wallace and I stood at a, a table for over an hour and argued about, from the Greek text and the grammar of the Greek text, this issue in the Carmen Christi in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Because he took Harpagmas there, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped in an active sense. And so he was he was really on in that ESS camp as far as uh, what he was saying in regards to the the eternal subordination of the Son. I was arguing for an, another meaning of, of Harpagmas, and when I wrote an article on that subject a few years later, I sent it to him to make sure that I was accurately representing him, but disagreeing with where he was coming from. And amazingly, we did that without hating each other. Uh, again, it's a, a strange a strange thing that happens once in a while. Um, but so that was that was 98, so that was well before the, the, the 2016 right. blow-up, but it was already very much a part of these things. And so let let me let me you've you've written some. Uh, can we, will we be able to talk about the uh, the article that, that you sent me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's public. Okay, it's public in principle. Okay, I wanted uh, I wanted to talk about a couple of things in that, but I, I want to just start off by say, asking if you feel that that I'm wrong here, and f- feel free to you've said I'm wrong about other things before, so it's okay. Uh, yeah. I've gotten used to it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it it it's probably needs to be said more more often than it is. Um, but I is in in 2016 the first thought that I had when I started seeing the kerfuffle developing was I really struggle, and I think this is expressed in uh, section four of your affirmations and denials. Um, yeah. We can look at that in a section. But uh, when I deal apologetically in the defense of the doctrine of the Trinity, one of the first things I have to say to people is, first of all, Jesus, the incarnate Son, is absolutely unique as the incarnate Son. So there is not going to be anything in the created order that I'm going to be able to point to um, that is going to be able to be a parallel to the hypostatic union, because it's, it's unique, and therefore there's nothing in the created order that is parallel to that. In the same way the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit in eternity past is absolutely unique. And therefore, I really uh, found it to be an inappropriate direction to be trying to say that we should be talking about, we should be using as a a template uh, something pre-creation to become the the organizing principle for something in creation, specifically the relationship of male and female in 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 mankind. So I can see 
the submission, for example, God is the head of Christ, uh, Christ the head of man, man's the head of the woman, there's an, there's an order there, but the very term Christ is Messiah, he's the one who's been sent, that's in a, in, in a, in a created context, it's not in the, in the eternal context. So right. I struggle with, uh, with this idea that, that it, w- it would even be cons- defensible to, to call it apostolic, to say that, that we should be trying to derive these categories uh, or any type of a template or, or guidance by looking back into eternity uh, at the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit and saying, that means this in how we relate to one another between, between the sexes. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? Okay. I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I agree with maybe all of it, but certainly almost all of it. And so here, here's how I would respond to that. When someone says, you know, you, look, friend, you've got to be more like God. Um, uh, the, the response would not be, oh, you mean omnipresent or, right. <laughs> uh, you know, we know, we all know what godly means. Uh, so Ephesians 5 says, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Jesus says that we're to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. We're to treat our enemies the way God treats his enemies. We're, um, and one of the, I, at the same time, what you're saying here has an important component. So what I tell people uh, regularly is that God tells us, God commands us to imitate things that we cannot duplicate. We're told to imitate them, not duplicate them. So um, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, no husband can die as a vicarious substitute for the sins of his wife. He, he, he cannot duplicate it because what Jesus did for his elect there was unique. But the husband is commanded to imitate it. So imitate it, uh, to use the Latin phrase, mutatis mutandis. All the necessary adjustments having been made. When you, you remember that, look, you're not God, pal. You're, you're not Christ. The incarnation was unique. God's, uh, God has com- what theologians call communicable attributes, love, for example, and incommunicable attributes, omn- omnipotence. So if there's an attribute of God's that's communicable, then I'm allowed to imitate it, making all necessary adjustments. If an attribute of God's is incommunicable, it cannot be communicated to a creature, to a finite creature, then I'm simply to set that aside and not uh, and not even attempt it. It would be hubris and pride and arrogance to attempt to be God, right? But it's not hubris to attempt to be godly. So when um, so when God says, uh, and and for me this is simply um, an exegetical question in John three, it, John three seventeen, God sent His Son into the world. That's different than his son going to the cross, his son already in the world going to the cross. Um, and in John 10, same thing. John, John is fond of that language. Christ is sent into the world. And, and that tells me uh, that there is some frictionless sending authority. A father-son relationship communicates something to me about how I'm to conduct myself with my son or my grandsons. I, I, I learned something because if I had grown up in a liberal mainline denomination where they talked about God the mother, um, 
you know, God our mother is a completely different cosmos. Right. It's a completely different, and it, and it would affect how I behaved. It would affect how I thought. So God as my mother is going to result in a different kind of Christian, uh, scare quotes around Christian. And God the Father is going to result in fathers taking responsibility, uh, loving their sons, uh, imitating, you know, um, when God the Father says at the baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, I can look at Christ's reception of that blessing and say that's the incarnate Christ. But the Father who's speaking is not, the, is not incarnate. <laughs> the Father is, is bestowing, expressing his pleasure in his Son. And I can imitate the Son in his reception of that blessing. But there's also something there in the Father's expression of fatherly pleasure in his Son that I can imitate but not duplicate. Okay. Do you see, uh, since, since we've mentioned the Carmen Christi a couple of times, um, when, uh, in, in verse 7, when, when, uh, when it says, but he emptied himself. Now, I, I, I think all Orthodox folks recognize kanao there is, is meant metaphorically. It's never used literally by Paul. It's not he ceased being God. But there's a, there's a reflexive pronoun right in front of it. This is something that the Son did. Now, Lutherans take a really interesting view on this, um, but... Lutheran, Lutherans are always interesting. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, Luther was always interesting, and then Lutherans are even more interesting than Luther was in, in many ways as well. So, yeah, most, most definitely. But it, if, if you take this, I take this in, in reference to incarnation. Many Lutherans take this in reference to the washing of the disciples' feet uh, prior to okay. uh, the crucifixion. Um, but I, I think this is taking us back in eternity past, and especially when it says taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. I, I really think it's a massive stretch to, to try to uh, apply that to uh, the night of the betrayal. But if it is, in fact, uh, in reference to that, uh, the phrase before, equality with God, but he made himself of no reputation. There is, a, there is an uh, the use of the reflexive pronoun means this is something that the Son himself did. I think this is one of the most important texts in demonstrating the pre-existence of the Son as a divine person, right. uh, because this is something he considers, this is something that he does, this is, this is divine action. Uh, willingly, yeah, willingly. Right, willingly. Uh, right. So, right. So whatever we do with this, the Son is sent by the Father, which I see as the, the Father authorizing what the Son is doing. He's speaking the Father's words. He, we're to honor the Son even as we honor the Father. I mean, that's a, that's a theme all through, through John. Um, it's not sent unwillingly, and it is sent in perfect harmony, and there is a sense in which the Son is making himself of no reputation. He is, he is emptying himself and being made in the form of a servant. Now, obviously, the Father's involved with that, the Spirit's involved with that, the Incarnation, all nine yards. This is Trinitarian theology. I don't think you can make heads or tails out of any of this if you're not right. a Trinitarian in the first place. Right. Uh, so, um, I, first, I agree with you that that's talking about the Incarnation. I, I, I think that that's um, took, the, the, took the form of a servant. He, he, so he's, it's talking about taking on the form of man. The, the, right. So uh, my understanding lines up with, with yours there. Um, and I used a word once or twice earlier in our conversation, which is frictionless. Mm -hmm. So if I, if I go up and, and I'm tr thinking about the decision-making process 
within the Godhead about an incarnate with the Christ coming. Uh, if I have the father ordering the son to go and the son obediently going, that miscommunicates in all kinds of ways, right? But if I have the son volunteering to go, which is sort of like it, uh, the, the way it happens in, in Paradise Lost, in, in Milton, the, the, the son sort of says, oh, I'll, well, I'll do it, you know, uh, and he volunteers to go. That, that miscommunicates also. The thing that I found helpful in this, and and a little cautionary word here, some observers, viewers of this, might at some point feel like the Shunammite boy in the Old Testament, where he says to his mother, "My head, my head." <laughs> you know, <laughs> what, are, what are you guys do? Why are you guys talking about this? But I think it's very important, oh, it and we can get to uh, get to this in a in a moment. But the thing I found helpful to me in this is an observation that Augustine makes. And that is, you don't have the father and the son in a room and the father issuing a command that goes across the room. The son receives the command and says, well, okay, I guess I'll do it. So, you know, there, there's, there's too much distance. There are two wills involved. There's, it, it's just a wrong picture. Augustine points out that when the father speaks, right, the word of the father is the son, Right, so it's not like you have the father on one side and the son on another side, and then the command of the father coming across to the son that the son then has to process. Uh, according to Augustine, the son is the word that the father speaks. So the command, uh, the 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 sending of the second person of the Trinity into the into the world, is not detached from the son at all. He's not a passive recipient who then has to process what the father came up with. When the father speaks, the speaking of the father is the son. He's the eternal word. He's the, he's the word of the father. Everything that the, everything the father has communicated, said, thought, is, the, is the eternal logos. In the, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. So I don't want I don't want to postulate any distance between the father and the son on this. And at the same time, I don't want to say, and that means it's an egalitarian uh, uh, operation either. Right. So uh, we mentioned earlier. Uh, I mentioned a document. C could you could you tell folks uh, what it is, why it was produced, and maybe how they can get hold of it before we just look at one little section of it. Yeah. Um, so uh, at uh, in the denomination I'm part of, the Communion of Reformed Evangelical uh, Churches, the presbytery that I'm in is Knox Presbytery. And two, two years ago, um, two and a half years ago, uh, I was asked by my presbytery to, in the light of the controversy in 2016 on the e eternal subordination of the, su the Son, I was tasked with uh, coming up with a position paper, um, in effect, that would uh, attempt to um, give due credit to what everybody was saying in that controversy that was valuable and suggest a way forward, you know, a, 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 uh, a way of affirming what everybody was concerned about, maintaining orthodoxy, and at the same time, uh, acknowledging that uh, the ESS people had 
a point. So if you had to choose between the two, I'm with the critics of ESS, but I think ESS uh, has something that has to be taken on board, has to be Wait, processed. You, you, mean, you mean the internet has polarized people to where you can't even admit the other side has a point? How yeah, shocking. You can't talk. No. <laughs> I'm, I, earlier you commented on this and uh, someone said, you know, if you put a thousand monkeys at a thousand keyboards and they typed for a thousand years, eventually they would produce the works of Shakespeare. Um, th now, thanks to the Internet, we know that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> they, they produce Reddit so, instead. So, <laughs> yeah. so, um, so what I did as so um, I draft I, I drafted this paper that I, I sent to you. And it's affirmations and denials. And I sent it, uh, I, I think it went through something like nine drafts uh, because I sent it to critics, editors on both sides of the, um, the 2016 debate. So I sent it to people um, in every direction and I pretty much incorporated everything that, uh, you know, well over 90% of the feedback I got, I was able to uh, incorporate into it. And then at our uh, at the last meeting of uh, Knox Presbytery in 2019 in the fall, uh, we finally we uh, adopted this paper and uh, and we forwarded it to our council meeting, which is this uh, this year in Chicago uh, uh, this coming fall. And we're going to be um, the the whole denomination will be considering uh, to either receive it or nod our head or be polite. Uh, you know, what are we going to do? But as it stands now, it's been it's been formally adopted by Knox Presbytery and kicked up to council. Okay, uh, we Baptists don't understand any of that, but that's okay. Um... <laughs> <laughs> we would have been done with it in 2016. Yeah. We moved on to yeah. things. That's yeah. the, that's the, that's you guys don't know. You don't, you guys don't know how much committee life you're missing out on. Oh man. <laughs> and we are not missing it at all. Let me, let me assure you of that. But anyway, uh, here's, here's where I'd like to push back a little bit, get some, get some clarity. Let me give you some background. Um, I'm sure you're aware of this, but this is, I don't know why, Maybe maybe someone in giving you feedback did make reference to this. Uh, I don't know. And maybe it's just simply my background and what I'm dealing with. But as you know, uh, Calvin uh, himself was critical of some post-Nicene developments in regards to Trinitarian theology. And he was because he was dealing with people like Servetus. He was dealing with... Uh, Unitarians and and because uh, what happened, you know, Luther was very concerned that the Reformation would just give rise to just a an anarchy of heresies and things like that. And in yeah. some instances, that was sort of true. Uh, that there were people who began expressing all sorts of fundamental questions in regards to the doctrine of the Trinity. And so Calvin emphasized a a particular term. Um, this is this is recognized by Murray, by Warfield, by everybody who's who's a recognized scholar of Calvin. He emphasized the phrase autotheos or or, or autotheates if you want to use the the uh, that that form of it. But it is the idea that the Son is God in and of Himself. In other words, that His participation in the divine nature is immediate, not mediated through someone else. Not secondhand. Not secondhand. 
And so he felt this was absolutely necessary to the defense of the full deity of Christ, and he connected it with what I think is one of the most important evidences from the New Testament of the deity of Christ, and that is the fact that the New Testament writers all across the spectrum identified Jesus as Yahweh. I mean, mm-hmm. John does it, the, the Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, direct, direct quotation, Psalm 102, 25 to 27. Uh, John does it in John 12, 41. Who did, who did Isaiah see in his temple vision? It was, it was Jesus, according to John 12, 41. These things that Isaiah... And then in, Rome, in Romans 10. In Romans 10. Uh, Romans 10. Paul quotes Joel 2, 32. He who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. First, first Peter 3, the, 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 the passage on apologetics, if you actually look at the context, is, is speaking of Yahweh. So... It's, it's all over the place, and Calvin saw that as saying, look, if the New Testament apostles are identifying Jesus as Yahweh in this intimate fashion, then what is true of Yahweh is going to be true of the Son as well, and therefore you can't have Yahweh being only intermediately Yahweh. Um, so, so alta theos, I think, is, is a very important um, uh, biblical, exegetical element of the defense of the doctrine of the Trinity, and again, that's where I am, because I'm having to do this with all sorts of people who don't even accept the authority of Scripture. I'm having to demonstrate the consistency of my position. I'm saying, yes, I'm taking my Scriptures as a whole, sola scriptura and tota scriptura, and this is what it leads us to. I don't mm-hmm. think a lot of the people in the egalitarian stuff, that, that's, that's, not where, that's not their world. That's not what they're necessarily running into. So in light of my agreement with Calvin that the Son is auta theos, then um, when, we, when we then ask the question, does the New Testament give us warrant to look at not the incarnational, decreed, economic trinity relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit, and draw all sorts of important—I mean, that's what, that's what Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is. Here's a sermon illustration. You want humility of mind? There's Jesus. There is humility of mind as in par excellence, and that's how we should, we should uh, approach one another in that way. If we go beyond that, section 4 of the Knox Presbyterian Statement says—and I'll read the first part of, of section 5, if, if you don't mind if I read this for you. Yeah. We affirm that even as Scripture reveals to us the names of Father and Son, so God has placed real meaning in those words, and our mortal relations, such as earthly fathers and sons, are analogical but real reflections of the eternal Father and Son." The denial that goes with that is, we deny that creaturely realities of finitude, mortality, or sin invalidate the archetypal nature of the Trinity with respect to man, or the capacity and responsibility for us to learn fatherhood and sonship from their immutable archetypes in the Holy Trinity. And then, really quickly, the affirmation of five, we affirm that even as God is the Father of the Son and the author of all being, so there is real authority, actoritas, within the Godhead. So, what, were, what is, the, what is the, the goal here? Because um, there's, just in passing, in the beginning of five, when it says, even as God is the Father of the Son... Um, my, my, if, if I had seen this, I would have said that that sounds like language I'm accustomed to hearing from the people that I'm going up against, 
And in their mind, they are distinguishing the term God there so that it's not appropriately applied to the Son. You're not doing that, but it just yeah. it's just that that my autotheos emphasis makes right. me uncomfortable with with referring to the Father as God separately from the the Son as Lord, Kudios going back to Yahweh in, in, in the Old Testament. Uh, because that's that's saying God the Father is the author of all being in some is that but not distinguishing that from the creative role of the son, right? Right. So um, what we're what we're saying there in in that passage for, first, kudos on Jesus is Jehovah, basically. Je- Jesus is Yahweh, um, and uh, in my mind, the the essential thing uh, has would have to do with whether or not the uh, is not whether. Christ, the, excuse me, the Logos is divine, not at second hand. He, he doesn't have a hand-me-down deity. Right. It's, it's, it's not like that. He is God in himself. He's divine in himself. He is essentially divine. Right? And, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about the frictionlessness of, of this. So, um, and I find uh, Jonathan Edwards on the Trinity to be helpful in this um, in this respect. So, uh, the Father loves the Son; the Son returns that love. And following Augustine, and I think Edwards would say the same thing: the Holy Spirit is that mutual love. I'm I'm a Nicene guy and a Western. Western Nicene guy. I embrace the filioque. The spirit proceeds from the father, filioque, and the son. Okay, well, how is that um, How is that done? The issue is not whether Jesus is God in himself, but rather, how does it come about that he is God in himself? Not, okay, now when we get to the hows, we, that's we, where we are really above our pay grade. I think the I think the ecumenical creeds prevent us from stipulating erroneous or heretical. This is how it happened, but at, in the final analysis, as you said, the the Trinity is not something that we have any daily experience of in any other realm of life. Right? It's a, it's absolutely unique. So I don't have any problem saying that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God in himself, and he is eternally begotten by the Father, right? So he's, he's monogamous. He's, um, God sends his only begotten son, and I take, I, I take John as using monogamous as a theological term of art, where it's, he's, he's saying that there is a unique relationship that the Father has to the Son. The Father begets, and the Son is begotten, mm-hmm. Okay, now that that does not have to be inconsistent with his de- the deity of the Son being essentially divine, not derivatively divine. Right, right. That that's that's the real issue. Is that uh, what what does when we speak of begettal when we when we talk about what are called the uh, opera ad intra the internal operations of the Trinity and and these of course right. let's let's just be honest what we're dealing with here 
are the mechanisms that developed over time. We're, we're not going to a particular verse of Scripture for, for the de- definition of opera ad intra and, and things like that. What we're right. doing is we're drawing, right. we're drawing the circle around the truth without necessarily defining the truth. We're defining the things that aren't the truth and excluding Correct. them to the outside because we're right. talking about something absolutely unique. And... There is far more biblical revelation upon which to go to discuss, for example, the relationship of the Father and the Son in the incarnate state than there is in the eternal state. There are just only a couple passages we can go to that draw aside the veil of eternity long enough for us to get a glimpse to, to, for any of these right. things. And those glimpses, those glimpses ought to uh, humble us, not embolden us. Exactly. Oh, I agree. Uh, a thousand percent. Um, so... With that, with that in mind, the, the question of the eternal generation of the Son, the problem with the term generation is that we automatically fill it with temporal meaning, and it's not right. meant to be taken temporally, it's meant to be taken only logically, it's, it's a relationship term, not a temporality term. And that, that, is, that is next to impossible to communicate to our Muslim friends, believe me, I have to do it all the time, so I can tell you it's very, very hard. Um, but it, it, you need to make the attempt anyways. Um, but where would you I am uncomfortable with the post Nicene fathers that went to the point of saying that the because being in person are two different things. We're talking about the being here, the the one indivisible mm-hmm. being of God that each of the divine persons shares fully, and yet some post-Nicene fathers went to the point of saying that eternal generation, using that that language, meant that the participation of the Son in eternity past in the divine essence, the divine being, is mediated through the Father. Where would... Where would I land on that? Yeah. Uh, So I would say that if... I would want to know what do you mean by mediated? Yeah. Uh, And and that's why I keep keep coming back to this term frictionless, because when when I look out in the world... Uh, I whenever I see someone, someone or something begotten, there's a process, and and this is the Arian heresy where there was a time when the sun was not, because in all my experience, you know, Arius might say, in all my experience, the begetter is always antecedent to the begotten, right, and 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 so I carry that freight, I carry that baggage up into my discussion of uh, of. God, the internal workings of the Godhead, which I don't get to do, right? At the same time, it's important that the the revealed things to us, Father, Son, and Spirit, are not. It's it's we're not Bartians, and so we're not saying that God is wholly other, and and we ha- can have no comprehension of what He's like at all. Because he reveals himself. God gives himself, he reveals himself, and he communicates himself. And so uh, when he says, I am a father, and if you've seen the son, you've seen the father, there are things that I'm invited to conclude from this, and there are things that I'm prohibited from concluding from it. Okay. All right? I, I'm, I'm prohibited from concluding friction, turmoil, uh, a struggle or anything like that. I'm prohibited from 
uh, differentiating them the way an earthly father and a son would be differentiated. I'm, I'm not allowed to do that, but I'm allowed, I'm, I must take on board something from it. All right. And a father is the font. The father is the source. Now, there is a sense in which the father is the source of the son, just like in, in Hebrews 1, where it says um, that, that Jesus is the radiance of God's uh, glory. It's like the light source is the father and the light from the light source is the son. He's the loom. He's the luminosity of the father, as Hebrews 1 uh, uses it. And so I want to say that's true. That communicates some real truth. And it's also true that the son is not got hand-me-down deity. That's also true. He's, Here, here's, I, this struck me, and, be, and at our age, you know I need to get this out before it goes away. Um, <laughs> <laughs> something you said, and then I was looking at the statement. When it says... God has placed real meaning in those words, and our mortal relations, such as early fa earthly fathers and sons, are analogical but real reflections of the eternal father and son. This is what would help. What do we learn about father and son and our relationships in humanity from the pre from, from the eternal relationship of father and son that we would not also be able to learn from the incarnate revelation of the sent son, the submissive son, uh, the one who is fulfilling the will of the Father, not come to do my own will, but the will of the one, one who sent me, John 6. Uh, what, right. what, what do we learn from that other realm that we would not learn from the incarnate realm? Uh, I believe that you could learn everything essentially, everything you needed to learn, you could learn from the incarnate one. If you've uh, Jesus says to Philip, if, you, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so, um, uh, yeah, I, I, if I look at the baptism of Jesus, um, I, I'm, I'm looking at all that. But like I said before, I'm not just looking at Christ being baptized. I'm looking at the fact that the Father was pleased with him. This is my son. This is my well-beloved son uh, with whom I'm well-pleased. God was uh, God was there. He spoke. He communicated. He was present. And so this, the Father, in this, uh, the fact that Christ is incarnate in that setup, I have to remember that the Father is speaking in that moment, and He's not incarnate. <laughs> the, the The Father is the, the Father is pleased with Him. So if I if I look at um, You've no doubt had this experience where you're counseling someone, a new Christian, and they've been, they're learning the Lord's Prayer, and every time they get to our Father, they choke right? because of the experience they've had with fathers, right? The, right? Um, well, that's, that's the way the world is. And someone who's grown up with a, a healthy relationship with their earthly father is going to be far more... Uh, in, in far more of a good place when it comes to coming to Christ and beginning to pray to God, their heavenly father, as the author of Hebrews says, we've all had earthly fathers who, who gave us what for from time to time. And, and, you know, and, and so we're, we're being taught to um, analogically to make a, 
a crossover to, to say, there's something I can get from here that applies over there. Uh, but I can't just take everything across uh, without. Okay. Yeah. We, we've been going a long time. There was one, one, la one thing I want to talk with you about before we, we sign off and stuff. And I, I didn't know what our time frame was either. We got started a little bit late. But what does any of this have to do with the patriarchy? And are you the source of the patriarchy? <laughs> yes, I started it. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to come clean. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might as well take take credit for it because you get blamed for it anyhow. So it doesn't yeah. it doesn't really matter. But um, seriously, I, I mean, I, I I don't get it. Uh, this is sort of sort of a new thing to me. But can can you p please explain how in the world the a a because if I understand you correctly, all you've been saying all along is there are biblical revelations concerning the relationship of men and women in God's law that are good, they're right, and they're not what our current crazed society that can't tell a boy from a girl is telling us they are, um, right. and that we shouldn't be ashamed of these things, and that there is a distinction of, of roles revealed in Scripture and if we abandon this, we're abandoning everything that the Bible tells us about God's creative purpose and all these things. And I guess if you want to call that patriarchy, um, okay, what does that have to do with this? Is is the idea that to hold your position, you must have some type of a commitment to a full-blown ESS position? Is that what people are saying? I, I... Yeah, I'd, yeah, I... I would uh, kick at full-blown ESS position because I think, like I said before, there there are definite problems there. All right, right? but uh, there is something that I think they're urging that's important for us to factor into this. Uh, in the debate, in the 2016 debate, some of the people who were stridently opposing ESS in the name of Nicene Orthodoxy also happened to be squishy on role relationships of men and women, mm. right? All right? So some of the loud voices attacking the ESS people were egalitarians or quasi-egalitarians. And, uh, and so the complementarian camp is, has been wanting to say, submission is not a dirty word. When a wife, uh, when a wife submits to her husband, uh, that's not a dirty word uh, because, look, Christians uh, worship the triune God, and we confess the full deity of Jesus Christ, and we believe that he was submissive to the Father when he was sent into the world. All, all the, the takeaway argument that they're using there is that submission does not entail inequality. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's true. I think that that's true. Um, and, and the essential lesson there, and this goes back to your question, the essential lesson there, I could learn from Jesus, the beloved son with whom God is well pleased, submitted to the father, and nobody is going to say that Jesus was degraded or mistreated or, uh, well, he's mistreated by the Romans and mistreated by his people, but he was not mistreated by his father, right? Um, he was... Um, uh, he pleased his father. He was pleasing his father when he went to the cross. Mm -hmm. Okay, even in the even in the moment of dereliction and the cry of dereliction, um, that was an, a sacrifice that had a sweet smelling aroma to 
to God. It was it was Jesus being obedient to death, even to death on, on a cross. So submission is not a dirty word. And some uh, a <clears throat> a patriarchal a patri patriarchalist or a complementarian um, could say, look, it's in the Bible. Of course, it's not a dirty word. Um, but some people have wanted to say, no, in, in the Christian economy, um, you can you can have the submission of one equal to another, right? So I, I consider my wife fully my equal and she considers me fully her equal. We are, it's a marriage of equals and we believe in headship and submission and we practice that, practice that. So uh, you can, you can have that. And that's where this whole thing cashes out. That's where this uh, thing becomes intensely um, practical uh, and and I would flip the question around. Let's say, let's say we um, give it in, give the field entirely to the people who are allergic to any kind of formulation or any kind of dalliance with ESS or any kind of uh, granting that they might have some good point in there somewhere. Let's let's say you have that, and we have robust Nicene Orthodoxy. Period. And and no ESS anywhere in sight. Suppose someone says, okay, why do you say women are equal to their husbands? Where do you, where can you find that in the Bible? Find, why, why would you say that wives are equal to their husbands? Well, if you're asking me, I, I, this, is, this is where I would start. I mean, right. fr from my perspective, I would start with the Eitzer Konegda. I mean, I would start with the Imago Dei. You, you start with, with the creation ordinance of God's purpose in man and woman, that woman is, is meant to be the, the helpmate, but Eitzer Konegda does not mean a, an inferior, but one that is corresponding to, but different. That We have direct biblical revelation on the glory of the woman, the glory of her being made in the oh, image yeah, of God. Yeah. That's all there. That's why I, from my perspective, I'm, I'm like, it really seems unnecessarily complicated to try to pull stuff out from an eternity past and a few texts and, and make a roundabout application. Why don't we just start with what the Bible says uh, about men and women? But if you, if you start with what the Bible says about men and women, one of the first verses you're going to run into is Genesis 1, 27 and 28. Um, and you just referred to it. Right. Male and female created he them. In the image of God, he created them. So male and female together is the image of God. It, that's what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Right? So it is. The, you can't say... Um, Men and women are equal because they together bear the image of God, but don't draw the conclusion that there's no image of God involved. Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> that would be that would be contradictory. Right, right. I, I just th I just think that sometimes uh, sometimes we get a little bit off the beaten path. I think I, I, there's 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 clear direct revelation in Scripture on this subject, and uh, I, I wonder how many pages have been burned. Uh, not talking about that and talking about other issues. It's not that this subject is not important. I'm, it's, it's been very valuable uh, in getting people to have a, a better understanding of what the doctrine of the Trinity actually is, um, and, right. and hopefully we haven't left everybody just sitting in the weeds as we've been discussing the opera ad intra and, and everything else. Hopefully that's, right. that's helpful to everybody. 
And I, I can't help the folks that are just not going to listen to anything we have to say because we're just closet heretics anyways. There's nothing to do about that. But I think they're going to I think they're going to click into this just to see your sweater again. Well, uh, well, that's that that's that's very, very true. Um, before 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 we wrap up and I'm starting to wonder if if maybe, you know, if we if we schedule a debate in the future, maybe, you know, I've, I've gotten into the practice um, uh, since 2006. So this I wasn't doing this back in, in when we when we did our debate in Los Angeles, but I've gotten the practice of giving my my opponents a, a gift. And so, you know, you, you never know. You might end up with a Kooji sweater of your own. Uh, it would be, <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. And, and in retaliation, I might wear it. <laughs> He just made Rich very, very happy over there. He's he's he's, he's an anti-Kujiite. But uh, on a, on a serious level, um, uh, just just wrapping up on, and leaving those issues aside, just on, on a personal level, um, tomorrow is uh, uh, as we're recording this. Tomorrow is January tenth, uh, twenty twenty, uh, which will mean that will be the ten uh, uh, year anniversary to the day of when my mother passed away, and. Mm. Um, uh, I'm not sure how to observe those things and and things like it's it's a until you experience it yourself it's a it's a strange a strange feeling. I know that your father is still alive, but he's very very aged, right. and you're you're helping in his care. Is that is that correct? Right, we're staying with him. Right, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think your mother has has passed away. Yeah, she passed away the same year your mom did. Really, 2010. 2010. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So right around the same times. Um, Reflect for a moment. You know, I um, I'm very thankful. It's it's strange, but uh, let me just ask you: Can you still hear your mom's voice? Yes. Yeah. So yes. can I. So can yeah. I. When I yeah. when I think of almost anybody else I knew in 2010, unless I still know them, I can't remember mm-hmm. what their voice was. But I don't I don't know that we ever. I don't. I do not want to forget what her voice sounded like. Uh, right. And maybe maybe sons can't, um, right. but my parents were married for it was over fifty three uh, years. I forget the the exact number. Yeah. I, I remember I took them out for their fiftieth anniversary. Uh, that was the mm-hmm. first time they'd ever been in a limo, uh, and I took them out <laughs> to a fancy restaurant, and and that was that was that was great to be able to do that uh, that type of thing. Right. Uh, but we live. Uh, I, I remember when, and you know, summer. Um, uh, when when Summer went to a public high school, because she'd been going to a Christian high school, and she said she wanted her unbelievers straight up. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, <laughs> that's what she said. Uh, but uh, she uh, she came home early on. She said, "I am the only girl in my PE class that lives with her natural parents. The only one." Mm-hmm. And when I think of the, the, the five decades that, that my parents were married and how rare that is today, um, mm-hmm. reflect for a moment, if you will, this is something you've written on a lot. How can, how can this society in which we live um, in any way ever flourish if we do not recognize the vital importance of the stability and the and the insight that was given to me that I was able to have a father and a mother, my natural father and mother, um, and until my my dad's still alive, uh, but un, until her death. I mean, that's that is a that is a tremendous blessing. Right, and it's um, it's a tremendous blessing, and it's an uh, it's something that 
secures the kids and not having it destabilizes the kids. Right? You know, so um, I'm reading a book right now. I've forgotten the name of uh, the author, but Primal Scream. And, and it, it has to do with uh, a lo- the, the, word of the, the, the word of our decade now is identity. Mm-hmm. People, are, people are flailing for identity. And, and so they're latching on to arbitrary things as they flail. And this is, um, and this is where a lot of our tribalism and our, our factionalism and our and the hatred that people have for one another in our um, cultural debates and so forth. That's where a lot of this is coming from. The fact that they the, these people didn't grow up in stable homes. Um, they they didn't grow up in places that uh, that secured them or anchored them the way they ought to be. Uh, the way uh, human beings created in the image of God need to be anchored. I'm uh, the greatest earthly blessing that God gave to me early on was parents who loved the Lord, loved one another, loved us, mm-hmm. and uh, did that did that consistently. And it's it's quite remarkable that you know when when I was a kid in the fifties, uh, I didn't know anybody who who came from a divorced. Oh, right. So, so I was, um, you and I are unique now Mm -hmm. with that story, but when I was a kid, that was commonplace. It it was really, it was really unusual to have some, to have broken homes. Everyone I knew was, uh, came from an intact home and, and there's something, uh, my dad was one of six brothers, six, um, six brothers. All of them lived full uh, lives, married to their wife, you know, um, their their first wife. That no no divorces among the six boys, and uh, my my dad had four kids, and there were every, no no divorces. The um, uh, the next generation no divorces. It's it's a God's blessing is is generational. And this is one of the things I learned from my dad, who you'll be pleased to uh, discover is a Baptist. So, <laughs> wise man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's, a, he's an insight. He's a Baptist who knows how to read generational promises in Deuteronomy, and well, that's what it's, that's what it says. So it, it was that was just something, and that was an anchor in my life. It, I, there's no no question about it. I see the world the way I do, um, in part because of that gift that they gave me large, large part. part oh yeah oh yeah no toys about it it's a it's a it's a great heritage to have and we're not in any way shape or form saying that god doesn't use people who come from broken homes or cannot heal those things not not making that statement at all but when a society right. specifically decides to devalue and demean um, the family and marriage and everything that it means, um, that's, that's God's judgment uh, upon a people who've had a tremendous amount of light. And uh, uh, we, right. and it's, it's an amazing thing. So, yeah, I was just thinking about that. That's coming up tomorrow. And, um, uh, you know, 10 years. And it, so I guess it's been the same amount of time for you, uh, approximately, since, yeah. since your mom passed. And, uh, you know, you you probably had the same experience I've had, but there's been so many times I've traveled someplace, uh, done something, uh, spoken at someplace, and I would have called my mom. 
uh, she would have just yeah. been so excited. You know, I have a picture of me preaching in Spurgeon's pulpit in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. Uh, that was a couple mm-hmm. of years, uh, you, you know, that type of thing. Uh, just she ne- never got to travel uh, and doing. Of course, she would have been scared to death. Uh, when I was debating in mosques in South Africa. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. That's probably what the Lord took because she couldn't have handled that anyways. But, um, but yeah, there, there's, there's just so many times that you go, you know, Lord, thank you so much for, you know, what you, what you provided. And, and then you think about you and your own kids and then your grandchildren, and you go, oh, goodness, have I, you know, have I given them even uh, a bit of, of what I should have uh, given to them? Yeah. How many times I've been selfish and, and things like that? Um, yeah, important stuff, and uh, it makes us, makes us uh, think about Amen. the future and the past. And Proverbs says, my son, remember the law of your mother. Yeah, yeah uh, that's yeah. true. That's true. Uh, and, and, and I do. Uh, and I do. It's, yeah. It sticks with you. Doug, thank you very, very much. I, I, thank you. You know, I don't know what the, the future holds, but uh, I'm certainly open to uh, future conversations. I enjoy them. And uh, I realize there are going to be people that are going to pick apart every single pause, every single syllable. I just pray yeah. that God will grant them a life that will be of greater joy than, <laughs> than of doing Amen. that. Uh, <laughs> but till then, I appreciate the time. Right. God bless you. All right. You too.